0: Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm Dan Runcie. Today, we're going to switch things up. Today, this is going to be a mailbag of questions straight from the Trapital listeners and readers. Haven't done one of these in a while. It's been a few months, but I always like doing these. Always get great questions that get my brain jogging and thinking about things in a different way. So let's get into it. The first question we got is from my guy, Aaron McClendon. He works at Detroit Venture Partners. Aaron's question is, are there any big differences between hip-hop artists' careers and how they monetize versus how other major genres monetize? The answer is yes. There are a ton of differences. Let's break those down. The first biggest difference, especially the past few years, is streaming. Hip-hop over-indexes on streaming more so than any other genre. I believe the data was last year over a third of all streams came from either hip hop or r&b that's huge we already know that hip hop has been the most popular genre in the world but that's still big especially when you compare to rock music which i think was just over 10-11% and you also look at pop music as well which i believe for the same stream was around 13 and 13-14% in a lot of ways, hip-hop music is pop music. This is why we say this. This is the most popular genre. But like I said, this is in streaming. And streaming, of course, has a whole different monetization strategy in terms of how you're trying to sell and who the person, who the um, distributors are that are selling streaming and then how that monetizes back directly to artists. So you hear all these places talk about how artists are getting paid X amount per stream. So much of that is impacting hip-hop artists more than anyone else. However, if we flip it and look at how artists are monetizing physical and digital album sales, it's completely different. In this aspect, this is where rock comes out on top. 44% of physical album sales for all genres were rock music. And then for digital album sales, it was just over 30%. And in pop music, it was just around 10% for both of those. And in hip-hop and R&B, it was 12% for physical albums and then 16% for digital albums. So it's completely different, right? And I think a lot of this extends to what do the artists monetize beyond their music, which I think is the other part of Aaron's question. You will see that in rock music or in pop or even in country more so, artists are still relying very heavily on their concert sales or their ticket sales or touring it makes up a huge percentage of the of their revenue but even more so for those genres because the artists there aren't as much in the mainstream pop culture so they're not getting as much of the brand deal opportunities um and if they are they're definitely much more niche and relative to what they are like they're not getting the kind of travis scott and drake and those kind of bags that the hip-hop artists are so it's definitely different in that type of way and i think we're probably gonna see that continue at least with the way things are with the streaming era i mean so much of it is dependent on hip-hop's influence and i don't see that changing anytime soon The next question is from Andy Anderson, who asks, how do you see Cash App leveraging the title acquisition in their growth business strategy? What's the interplay between the business of hip-hop and the business of companies like Cash App that have become embedded in hip-hop culture? And there's a secondary question by someone else that's related to this. What is the value of title based on? And what is Square's intention with title moving forward? So this question, of course, is underlying the fact that Square has just finalized the deal to acquire title. I believe the final price was around $300 million for the deal. And they're... Are plenty of synergies. I think anyone that's been either reading or listening to Trapital has seen the Cash App article that I'd written last year about how hip hop influence has helped Cash App grow faster. But you've also seen some of the analysis and the work that I've done specifically talking about this deal itself. There's a number of ways that this deal works, but one of the biggest is content strategy and specifically content marketing. Let's break this down. If you think about how a company like Amazon uses Prime. They are essentially putting each of these series that they have, whether it's your Marvelous Mrs. Maisel or Fleabag, each of those are essentially content marketing to attract more Amazon Prime customers. And if they attract those customers, they end up becoming lifelong customers and they make that money up over time. That's why they put so much of an investment into this. So it may be a much more expensive content marketing play than, you know, a company putting up a blog post to try to attract more email subscribers to them, become more paid subscribers, whatever it is. It's very similar, but it's just at a it's just at a bigger play. So if you think about Title and Title's position as right now, this is a music distribution service, but they've expanded into video, they've expanded into other things. There's an opportunity where they could have current artists that are popular or future artists that are using Title as a platform to create events or to create digital experiences or to just release music and as part of a promo or as part of some type of offering that the artists offer they could say hey if you do this then you get additional money to use as cash app as promo you can do this use my code and i will send each of you x amount of bitcoin through cash app and then that helps cash app attract more users In some sense, everyone's doing the same customer acquisition costs and lifetime value ratios that they're trying to measure this title in many ways is using this as an opportunity to be artist friendly, but specifically trying to use it to to attract those people who are customers. And we saw how beneficial that was for them, the campaigns they did with Meg Thee Stallion, Travis Scott, Cardi B, and even Lil B. That helped them get so many more customers, and it was so different from how Venmo was growing. That's how Cash App was able to grow. They grew in parts of the country where there just wasn't as much of a focus there. It's such a standard thing to see in tech where companies will focus specifically on, okay, what does my what is the tech in Ivy League circles look like? Let's grow on the coast first. Let's grow in these areas that are much more known for being the centers of tech, but if you take the exact opposite approach, you see how popular things are on black Twitter. You see how popular artists are and the following they have. You can have you can get your competitive advantage by growing in places where they're not. And that just worked so well for Square specifically through Cash App. And then also just seeing how well Bitcoin has worked out for Cash App as well. And how much hip-hop artists love Bitcoin. And so much of the um, investment and education that they've done on that front I think there's a number of opportunities there both for current and existing artists that are using titles. So we'll see how that develops. But overall, I do think this is a pretty strong um, content marketing play that can expand over time. And Jack Dorsey is someone that's been very open. You know, he's someone that's on the board of Disney and he wants to build that type of company. And these are the kind of moves you have to do to make it happen. I know that, I've been running a little long with this question, but I think this is all good context. I know that a lot of people did try to write the deal off in some ways, whether it's, oh, you know, this is just, you know, Jack Dorsey and um, Jay-Z are just boys. This is more of a friend thing. Or Jack just wants it to be cool and in the culture. But yeah, I mean, all of those things are good, but I don't think people throw around $300 million just to make Jay-Z happy. Everyone has had failed business interests, and I do think there's some alignment here. So let's see where it goes. All right, next question is from at Pillow Don't Sleep. The question is, why is there a public database like IMDB Pro for aspiring actors looking to find trends, new projects and budgets, industry players, but these types of databases are privatized in the music industry, locking away from aspiring musicians? This is a great question, and it's come up in a few different areas, and I think there's a few things going on. First thing is what we know about the film and media industry. So much of the work that film studios and production studios do. They are using public entities and municipalities to use their work, whether they need to rent out space or have a government contract or have some type of deal in place. And anytime you do that, you are essentially leveraging tax dollars in some way to do that, which makes and forces the information to be public because this data is public. That's why we often see exactly how much it costs to create and what the budget is for a lot of movies. I do think that a lot of these numbers are inflated, but that's another story for another day. What we see, at least in the free version of IMDB and some of these other sites, is a breakdown on that public data because it's already going to be shared anyway. So let's create something that's easy for folks to access. That same type of public information, that doesn't exist in the same way in music. We don't know how much Universal Music Group spent to create and market a project like views or scorpion from drake we don't know how much money drake used out of his own pocket to put that forward drake doesn't have to have a contract with the city of toronto to do those types of things or any other artist A lot of it ends up being behind a bit of a a black box, which I do think is to their competitive advantage. Why would you share that information if you don't have to? And I think the only reason we know this information in film is because it's shared because there clearly is a, a financial advantage for a production studio to work with the government in that type of way. The difference though, and I think this is where some of the nuance comes in, if you look at a database like IMDb, There still is a lot of information that is only available in their paid version. So, IMDb Pro is actually the freemium version. So, you do have to pay for that. And I think it's a comparable, it may be comparable to Variety Insights, which I know is also pitched as an insider type tool specifically for actors and those working in film and TV. In music, and this is what um, the question is relating to so many of the tools are behind databases, whether it's things you've seen in um, Media Research's work or in um, Music Ally or some of these other companies, and they all do great work. A lot of their stuff ends up being kind of freemium as well. So they do at least have some reports that they create that are free, and that's how they're able to generate some interest. But they do also have ones where they are charging money for those to run their business. So in some ways, that piece of it isn't as different. But I will say that there are at least people that are doing their job to just put out some information, to help educate other companies, I'll give a quick shout out to Roster. I know they're a bit newer in this space, but they have made a name for themselves and have some of this data as well. I know Chartmetric has some of this good data as well. And also some of the independent creators that are putting this out there too. Sherry Hu, who I've done a bunch of collaborations with on her Water and Music website, she has information that is both available for her uh, Patreon subscribers but also that is publicly available to anyone as well. So, there is some information out there and definitely encourage any of the rising artists, especially if you're not tied to a major label that they're paying some of these companies for, check out those resources because they are out there and I think that addresses why things are so different from film and media and entertainment as opposed to things directly in the music industry. All right. Next question is from Mario Gabriel, who writes a really great uh, newsletter and is running a media company called The Generalist. Check out his work. I subscribe to his newsletter. I really enjoy it. He asked, how big an industry is rap battling and what's holding his back? He Watches KOTD, which is King of the Dot, videos obsessively, but it still feels relatively niche. And for context, uh, King of the Dot is a rap battle series that is largely on YouTube, but they've expanded from there. The thing is, rap battle content is niche. He's absolutely right there, but I don't think it was always this way. And I think it shifted based on where hip hop is going. And to be honest, I don't think it becomes mainstream anytime soon. It's just not where the mainstream culture is of hip hop. I mean, if I think about like my time growing up, shows like 106 and Park that would have Freestyle Friday, and there were plenty of artists that were good there that almost became, I don't want to say household names, but if you watch a lot of TV or if you watch a lot of BET, you knew who these folks were. And even, and even what you were hearing more mainstream. Uh, I remember uh, one time when I was in high school uh, in the locker room, um, they're playing Cassidy. I don't I don't know if everyone listened to this it was Cassidy. But he was a rapper from Philly. Uh, and he had this battle where he was rap battling against himself on a track and it was just something that was seemed awesome at the time but just would feel very niche and off-center, not off-center but like off mainstream if someone was to do it now. And I think later on you saw shows like Wild and Out get popular but still never quite mainstream in the same type of way Like, if you just think about who are the main, most mainstream artists right now look at someone like Travis Scott I do not see someone I don't even see him making a diss record let alone getting involved in a rap battle I do think the fact that KOTD can be thriving and I know there's Ultimate Rap League there's a few other channels where things can clearly survive whether it's on Twitch or Caffeine or outside of the mainstream but still have a big enough platform but I don't think you're ever going to see it in that same type of way. Alex asks... What are your predictions for the future of record labels, both independent and and large uh, major record labels? This question often gets asked, and I think the underlying question that folks are asking, will labels still be around X number of years from now, given the rise of independence? And do people still need a major record label in the age of the internet? And the answer is, yes, they will. The reason that they will still exist is the same reason why the New York Times will still exist, even though someone can just start a blog tomorrow and put their own words on the internet. There is still a financial piece of being able to make sure that your mark that your product gets the most amount of financial support and the expertise behind it. And if that's what you're valuing, that's what the labels can continue to offer. And there are always going to be the people that regardless of how many tools are out there, one of their dreams that they've always had was to get signed by Columbia, get signed by Republic, get signed by Def Jam. This is just how it is in gray, no different than someone growing up and their lifelong goal is to become a front page editor for the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal That's how much power that a lot of these institutions still have. And I think that's going to, and I I think that's going to continue. That said, what I think is great about the era right now is that they don't necessarily have the same type of control and influence that they once did. And the fact that you could still have a very successful, you could have an even more successful career now and still reach the masses and do that given all the tools that are there. But I still think that there will be at least some limitations on that journey, depending on what your goals are. If your goals are to keep things nimble and you are satisfied with being able to make a living for yourself, you can do that. You can do that much more easily than you could have in the 80s or 90s and even in the 2000s. That's what we've seen in the streaming, social media, technology advancement era that we currently have now. But on the other side, there's also more competition than ever. There are over 40,000 tracks a day being uploaded to these streaming services. It's a ton of music and it can be even harder to break out. And some people aren't going to want to put in that grunt work to have to expand and try to grow on all these platforms themselves. There's so much content being created on them, and that's what happens when the barriers are low, and for some people, they are going to, they would rather take the platform and the support that comes with that, and I think that option is always going to be there and attractive to a certain number of people. That said, I do think that uh, some of the finer details of the business models that major labels have will likely have to and will shift over time. I mean, I think the deal that Taylor Swift had signed with Republican Universal is a sign of that. You can't sign an artist like that, leaving their deal and expect them to sign their masters away. No, they did a strategic type of partnership. She licensed the masters out to them. She's going to get them back when they're done. She was also able to ensure some stipulations in terms of sales of in terms of the ownership and sale of future Spotify stock that Universal has. Those are the type of things that I think we'll see. And sure, a lot of that is superstar treatment, but that's the game. And I think that is going to exist in a lot of ways, especially as artists have the ability to build up more leverage than they had. But those that are willing to do that, honestly, may be fewer and farther between. So the labels will continue adapt, to adapt, and there's always going to be a type of artist that is willing to offer that platform, and I think they'll just adjust with the times. All right, this next question is from Vayara, who asks, who are some of the biggest names of women in hip hop that quote nobody knows but we should know related to shaping the industry, signing deals, introducing new artists, scouting talent, etc. Let me take out the nobody knows piece of it because everyone knows someone and I mean I do think the industry is small. First person is Binta Brown, who is uh, the founder of Omolily Projects, which is a um, management and production studio. She's worked on a number of projects um, directly in the music industry and um, was quite successful before entering this industry as well, doing other things. And I think it's always interesting when you have people like that because they offer a fresh perspective. So I definitely think she's one of those people. Another person is Ethiopia Haptamerian, who is the CEO of Motown, who was recently promoted in that role. And I think she has worn multiple hats in this industry, both on the publishing side and running the record label. I think what she's helped do and the partnerships she's done within Motown have been really strategic. She actually just had a really good billboard interview that I think folks should check out that I think is a really good Insight as to how she's run the label and where things are moving forward. Another person to check out is Heather Lowry, who runs Femit Forward. It is a music and entertainment platform. They are doing some really interesting things. Like for instance, she or the company Femme Ford is helping to put on the upcoming Versus battle with um, SWV and Escape, which is dope. So it's good to see live stream and the digital events in that way because I think a lot of her work was more focused on the in-person type work and some of the partnerships there with Live Nation. And the fourth person that I'll mention as well, Um, is Felicia Fan, who's the head of urban music at Columbia Records. Columbia is home to some of the biggest and most successful and influential hip-hop artists. She has a front row seat and influence there. I think that she does great work. So those are four people to check out if you haven't already. The last question is from someone whose Twitter handle is Stay Hydrated. And the question is, what's your opinion on cancel culture's effect on music? positive or negative. What cancel culture has created, at least it's forcing us to have more of the conversations that we either should have had as an industry and as a culture at the time and when these things happened. Because if you think about it, a lot of these things were happening swept under the rug. People that were bringing it up got silenced, almost like they were whistleblowers and no one wanted to respect the whistleblower for what they said. The thing is, and I guess why I don't have as much of an issue as some other people may have with it, is that what does it actually mean to Be quote unquote canceled in music. The closest thing that we actually saw to this was a few years ago when Spotify had announced that they were going to take off the music from a certain number of artists, uh, primarily uh, male artists who had either had a history or known of being controversial in some type of way. But then once those people were noticed, then someone else had said, okay, well, if you're gonna take, you're gonna take my music off a playlist and everything else. What about these other people? What do you say about them? And it then created this challenge where Spotify ended up re-calling back the, the change that it made. And for most of these artists, Their music is still widely available. I can't think of any artists off the top of my head, even the ones that we think have done the most, you know, despicable, horrible, violent crimes, that their music isn't available. And if we think about it, honestly, I'm not going to say their names, but I can think of two artists in the past few years who there were specials produced and released about them and the horrible things they've done and their music streamed even more that week. So what is canceling? Were those artists really canceled? Just because there's a certain subset of us that aren't talking about them the same type of way, but there's still clearly a group that's like, no, screw them. If I want to listen to so-and-so, I'm going to listen to so-and-so. And And they've done that. Being canceled is something that the actual definition of it is, I think, overused in a way. No, if you had to apologize about something via notes app and you can move on with your career or you're made fun of by some outlet, you are not canceled. I think there's very few people who can be canceled. I think it reminds me of the irony of someone going on a particular news outlet talking about how they've been canceled. And it's like, you're on a news outlet right now. That is not what being canceled is. You clearly have a platform by speaking about how you've been canceled. I think that the term gets overused, but I do think that it's at least forcing us to have these nuanced conversations and different people are going to feel different ways about it, right? If you still want to listen to a certain artist, you can do that. And I think now we've just at least created a space for that to happen. If you feel like you can still acknowledge and think what someone did was wrong, but separate the art from the music, you can do that too. Or if you choose to ignore all of that and be like, I don't care what anyone says, you know, I want to stand my people and do that. You can go ahead and do that too. And I do think that we probably overuse the term and I can honestly, for better or worse, think of few musicians who have actually been canceled. I know that was the last question, but I'd rather end things on a high note, and I want to talk about something that has cracked me up recently. There have been a bunch of founders recently who have posted the... List of investors that they have had in their fundraising rounds as these Canva-style graphics that look like a lineup festival that you would see at Coachella or Bonnaroo, where all the names are listed in a row and they have some type of colors to pop in the same type of way that you would see that festival lineup. It's funny because... We've seen so many examples of things in music that have been adopted into tech, and this is just another one of them. And I do think there's a great marketing aspect of this, and it makes sense for a lot of reasons. So many investors now are becoming a bit celebritized in that type of way. So if you're going to lean into that, then where else to lean into and learn from than music festivals that can do this better than anyone. But the piece of it that really makes me laugh is what I know this means in the music festival space and what some of those things look like in VC. So for instance, I know that there's a lot of politicking and a lot of pettiness in music based on the font size of particular artists, what row someone is on, and where they line up with things, right? Think about it. Let's say you're Lizzo and Bonnaroo hits you up to perform. You don't just want to perform. You want a headline, and you also want to know who are the other headliners. And if Bonnaroo doesn't want to offer you a headlining spot, then you damn well want to know who else is getting a headlining spot instead of you. If it's Beyonce or if it's Rihanna, okay, you can understand that. But if it's some other artist that you think that they're not on the same level as you and they get one, oh no, that isn't going to work. And then you also just think about how things get further and further down that list. There's this inherent thought about the... smaller the font and the further R down you are, the less important that you are. And think about what that could look like in tech. At least there's some financial aspects here in tech that do make it a little bit easier to understand just given that, okay, if you're a lead investor, that's the equivalent of a headliner. But swear, if you are an investor and this thing is not in alphabetical order and someone tries to put you at the bottom, that could be a thing where it's like, no, if you're going to put me at the bottom, you're not going to get a check from me. Just think about how petty venture capitalists are. And specifically, the ones that are on Twitter, where these things are spreading, they're not going to go for that shit. And honestly, I don't blame them. If I was giving someone a check from Trapital and you put me at the bottom, you got another thing coming. You better put me at least at the middle of that thing. Otherwise we'll have to talk. So that's the note we're going to end on instead. Maybe I'll post a few of these in the show notes. If you're just hearing me talk about this and the first time you're hearing about it, have a link or two to one of them in the newsletter as well. So thanks again to everyone that's sending questions. These are dope. I got to do these more often. I don't know why I haven't done these in a while. I just love getting questions like this and it gives me an opportunity to nerd out and also just go on rants. Or sometimes when you have interviews, you can't just rant in the same type of way, but at least this gives you an opportunity to do that. So this was good and I hope you enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups,